Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from Hunter Springs Landscape Artisans. Helping enhance the central New York landscape since 1983, Hunter Landscape specializes in tree and shrub design and installation, natural stone craftsmanship, and traditional landscape and hardscape. Project galleries found at HunterSpringsLandscape.com. You're sending money out of Syracuse and not just for 30 years, for the rest of their life. But when you are told that there's a promise that your generation will be better than the previous generation, and we're seeing that the statistics tells us that that's not the case, it's evidently clear that it only is going to change if we are going to be the ones who fight for our future. So we want to put in context, because it's not just a class issue, it's a race issue. We're telling black and brown people and poor people, you don't matter. Welcome to Afro Futures. You're here with the host Youssef, and I am talking with a really important person in my life, a really good friend of mine, Ruth Angran, who is the communications director for the Mayor Walsh administration in the city of Syracuse. Welcome to Afro Futures, Ruth Hey, Youssef. Thank you for having me. Hello, Afro Futures community. You know, it, it's it's funny because in having this conversation. Is it, is it fair to say that we have an exclusive with, with you in this in this sense? We have an exclusive with Ruthney? It is in regards to the topic, because uh, as of as of my social media post, I'm not talking about it with, with anybody. So I guess with anybody but you. So yes, you got an exclusive. Well, for the listeners, you, you got an exclusive here with Ruthney Angran, and you heard it here first on Afro Futures. <laughs> I really wanted to have a conversation with you about you, your work, and the the ways that you've navigated the world with the varied identities that you bring with you um at the same time as we were thinking about having you on the show there were a number of things that were going on in the world specifically specific to the country of your origin haiti and i want to be clear to the to the listeners and and to those who who subscribe to afro futures that under normal circumstances i would never interview a person because of a background to be a representative of that community. And that is not what we're doing today. We're not tokenizing Ruthney as a Haitian American to talk about or on behalf of Haitians. But I do think it's important for us to humanize the Haitian experience. I do think it's important for us to have a conversation about your journey, both to this country and really your journey uh, to where you are today. And in doing so, I know that a lot of the connection between that journey is told through the lens of being Haitian and being Haitian American. So we're going to talk about it. And as, as we said, we have an exclusive, but I just want to be putting a disclaimer to folks that like, we are not looking to Ruthie as the expert on Haiti, or we're not looking to her as the person to speak on behalf of all Haitian people. And, and so with that, um, I introduce you all to Ruthie Angran. Ruthie, as I said in, in the kind of lead in, um, you work as a communications director for the Walsh administration. How did you get to this role, right? You know, it, Syracuse is a city is a city that has the highest levels of concentrated poverty. We have a, a large refugee community. And there you have a, a, a Black woman of Haitian descent who is the communications director for the Walsh administration. What, what drove you to participating in the administration? And, and what was your background prior to uh, joining the Walsh administration? First of all, I, I want to thank you for for the disclaimer, um, like the respect that you approach people's stories. That is 
that you know, if all of media uh, looked at their work as a representation of peoples, I think we would be in um, a less toxic uh, social environment. So I, I really appreciate you doing that. And thank you for doing that. Thank you. Uh, as for how I, how I got here. So it's funny because you know how some people say like, oh, I ask myself that all the time. Like I've never questioned how I got here. Um, and I can say confidently in my skin that I got here by being me. Um, I think I thank the almighty God for that. I thank him for giving me Ruth Sade and Anthony Ungrand as my parents because they shaped me so much. That parental hazing is real. <laughs> uh, I am so much of them. Uh, my, my faith, my compassion, uh, my humanity is very much my mother. But my wit, my drive, my competitiveness, my curiosity, uh, it's very much my father. Um, so I, I'm appreciative that, that God saw fit that I, I get to have those two experiences those two experiences shape me. And then more so, you know, I'm, there's this thing I have about like people who got issues with people from other cultures, because you can't be evangelical or of any faith and say, you got a problem with where someone was born. They didn't, I didn't raise my hand in the astrological womb and be like, oh, I picked that place. But where you're born is like a seed. It's a gift given to you. It is part of like what makes you unique in this world. There are plenty of people from Haiti. There are plenty of people from America. There are plenty of people from Mexico or wherever. But how many people in the world have your parents that have their experience and are placed in that country and go through that journey? That is part of your uniqueness. And it's beautiful. Anytime you have something that can't be quantified or predicted, you know, we call that scientifically a wonder, an anomaly. So it's beautiful. And I love that anomaly. And it, it shaped a lot of who I am. But how I got here, just by being myself, honestly, by being myself. I, I tell everybody that I'm a passionate person. Um, I'm passionate about engagement. I'm passionate about performance and connecting with people, whether through art, whether through the literary form, or whether through um, communications and messaging and using multiple mediums but I'm all about connecting, but I don't wanna to connect to give away myself. I wanna to connect to better understand um, the, the person or the other thing that I'm connecting to and see how it adds to me. It's all in my quest for self-actualization. I mean, if we wanna be better people and better humans, then we have to examine and evaluate things in our life, where we come from, experiences, the people who are there and understand it and understand what it contributes to our life. So for me, I know I get my curiosity and my intellect from my dad. I worked very hard. I believe that the character of Papa Pope on Scandal was written for my father. Like he is the original <laughs> Papa Pope. That whole, you gonna have to work three times harder, three times faster just to get where they, that was Anthony. I was five, maybe, I was five. I know it's five because maybe four, because in New York state, I think you had to be five and a half to start school. And I wasn't five and a half yet. And my dad was like, this girl's not going to spend another day in this house. I got to go to work. So, you know, we had recently immigrated and I was born in Haiti, um, Cape Haiti, which is uh, the northern coast of Haiti. And we, my family immigrated here um, between like 89 and 90. So I, I have memories of like my dad braiding my hair and, and me hanging out with him while my brother goes to school. And he was like, I want to get this girl in school ASAP. 
Um, but in New York City, I was too young. So what did my dad do when I was four? He saw a commercial for Hooked on Phonics and figured if that could help illiterate people read, that it could help this girl. So he put me Hooked on Phonics at four years old. And I was a chatterbox by five. And he tried to enroll me in school. And they were like, eh, she got to be five and a half. And he was just like, no, we're going to make this work. And he gets me in school. And um, I come back home from like early on. I guess I'm like frustrated and crying because I was a crybaby. And uh, he was like, what you crying about? I was like, oh, like me, they're bullying me and making fun of my name, making fun of me. And, you know, he got down on his knee, looked me dead in my eye. You know, this is where you would expect like a beautiful speech from your father about how amazing you are. No, mine looked me in the eye and said, find your people and get over it. And I was like, that's, that's no speech for your five-year-old daughter. Where's the love and the compassion and all the stuff on Young and the Restless that you and mom be watching? But no, I didn't get none of that. I got, you know, the white people are going to see your skin color and make an assumption about you. The black people are going to see your parents' accents and our mismatching clothes and make an assumption about you. Everyone's going to have an assumption about you. So you're going to need to find your people, thread that lane. And I don't care what color they are, what they look like, if they're short, tall, fat, slim. When you find your people, those are the people that appreciate you for who you are. You find them and you run with them. And those are your people. And you don't worry about everybody else. And I was like, this is, this is I don't even understand what you're saying right now, but I'll go find my people. And that's what I've done throughout life. Whether it was growing up between Long Island and Queens, New York, I found my people. Um, when my parents split up and separated and my mother moved to Atlanta, um, and I did, you know, end of middle school and high school and undergrad there. You know, I, I tell people I didn't know I was black till I got to Atlanta because in, in the safety of like Queens, New York, like the most diverse county in all of the United States of America, my best friends were Dominican and Bengali. Like everybody was an ethnicity first. So at that age, I wasn't looking at color. I, I had the opportunity to just be Haitian. I, I went to a Haitian church. I ate Haitian food. I spoke Creole and French in my house. Everything in my home was very much Haiti. It wasn't America until I stepped outside the house. So um, I never had those conversations or felt that way. And then I get, I get to the South <laughs> with an F. And, um, and I remember my mom moved to, we moved a lot. And my mom moved to Decatur, Georgia. And uh, Decatur where it's greater. So I appreciate Atlanta for, for, for my cultural enlightenment. But I got to Decatur and I came home from school that first day and I was like, my mom had a job at Grady. I was like, mom, everybody's black. She's like, yeah, I know, honey. I said, no, 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 no. You don't understand what I'm saying. I didn't know there was anywhere in America where there was only black people. I was like, the principal's black. The bus driver's black. The guy who mows the lawn is black. The, the, the people working on the roof are black. Even the white girl looks black. Like, I don't, I've never seen nothing like this in my life. And I was like, I know, honey. And it was culture shock for me. And I was like, what? Oh, but they're not Haitian, they're black. They're like American and black. Like, everybody. And she was like, you'll be fine. And I was just, I was surprised at how much exposure I didn't have, that the world didn't look like Manhattan or Manhattan or Queens, New York. That was the world. And my best friend, Atlanta, you know, I met her mom and her mom was a mentor for me. Um, Jovi Irwin, her mom is Vicki Irwin. She's an amazing woman. And I just remember Vicki Irwin telling me, you know, freshman year in high school or sophomore year in high school, Ruthie, when you walk down the street, there is no sign on your head that says you're Haitian. This is Georgia you are black or white. <laughs> so she said, read up and catch up. And I was like, yes, ma'am. Um, you know, and she was a Delta too. So she had that, that extra love in it. 
and, and the authority in, in, in her voice. I had, a safe, I had a safe space to like explore my blackness. And I, I really appreciate that about Atlanta. So I got to be a mixture of all those things. And when I came back to Syracuse, I brought that with me. And, and I wasn't gonna leave it anywhere because I know what that feels like to like walk around the world without an identity. So that's how I met Mayor Walsh. And, and that's how we got here. He, he met a woman who was comfortable in her skin, comfortable knowing what she knew and comfortable engaging on civic issues and was like, okay, well, let's rock together. You, know, you mentioned in that, so many important things. I mean, I think there are questions about blackness and and what what that means and and how that ebbs and flows and who's inclusive in that definition. But you, but the thing that I want to kind of circle in on are the gifts that you say that Haiti has given you, right? Like as you said in the beginning, that where you're from gives you these gifts. And I, I, I thought I thought that was really interesting the way that you phrased it. Haiti has clearly given you gifts in your ability to be certain in your identity, confident in who you are, and to be able to build the women that can become the communications director for a city of 150,000 or so people. Um, but the Haiti that I think the world often thinks about is a Haiti that is quite different um, than, than what is appropriate to what history talks about. And, and, and not necessarily history from the lens of um, the conquerors, if you will, but really the, the, the ways that Haiti has been treated um, because of the gifts that is given the world, right? And so if you can talk just a little bit, and again, as I said, I don't, I'm not having this conversation because I think you're the expert on Haiti and, and Haitian diasporic issues, but I think people do need to know the relationship that Haiti has to independence, the relationship Haiti has and has paid for um, in, in, in response to that independence. And I'd be interested in getting your thoughts about the gifts that not only Haiti has given you as a Haitian, as a Haitian and, and Haitian American woman, but has really given the world. So like I've thought about it and uh, friend Vicki Brackens once texted me one night and asked what do I think were the ingredients that made Haiti's independence possible at a time where it was unthinkable across the globe um, and the, the weight of colonization was so strong. And I told her, I said, you know, it's very much what makes us who we are today. Um, you know, if trauma can be, if trauma can be passed down across generations in your blood, so can courage, so can ideas, so can just the feeling and the sentiment that you're supposed to do something else or, or be something more. Um, and I told her, you know, I, I like to attribute Haiti's independence to three things. Um, one, proximity. Proximity being you had a group of people um, that were the first or second stop on the transatlantic slave trade. And they had to survive like the most unthinkable conditions in intimate and unhygienic proximity to each other. If you can't have sex with a person without sharing body fluids and what they call it, soul ties. And, and if you can't be that close in proximity with a person without exchanging more than just physicality in an intimate romantic setting, what makes you think that you aren't going to share things with a person locked on the bottom of a boat 
for weeks, if not months on end in close proximity, you know, people from everywhere. And that proximity bred something in those people. It bred a sense of resilience, a, a deep exploration of what it takes to survive and what it means to aspire for better. When you have experienced the worst of something, then you are also capable of aspiring for the best of something. That proximity didn't change when they got on the island. When you think about the, the classes of people that existed in the world in the 1700s, there were colonizers, and then there were those that were colonized. And then there were lands that were undiscovered. Those were the only people who were really free. When you think about it, like freedom meant not being in the crosshairs of discovery of colonizers. And, and in Haiti, we had, in the Caribbeans all over really, but in Haiti, we had gens de couleur, like free men of color, men and women of color. And they carved out a unique class for themselves. And for me, that proximity comes back because it starts to breed like a spirit of collaboration, uh, an understanding of the power of connectivity, not just of, of person to person, but like the connectivity of sharing the human experience because the, the free men of color had long negotiated not being enslaved. They couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't hold representation. They couldn't hold class titles, but they weren't indentured servants. Um, they had gotten past indentured servitude. So they had gotten to this place where there was some level of cohabitation because it's like, okay, well, we can move through, through certain parts of the place freely. We can develop ideas and, and thoughts. We could read and have writings. We can, we can travel where permitted. So there was a certain amount of, of freedom, not just in thought, but in like, but in, in how you move and how you think and how you talk. And even in looking for freedom through, through civic and literary discourse, it wasn't all, people talk about our history and it was all, oh, they were violent and they, they conquered the French and that was it. No, that revolution did not start with violence. It actually started with discourse. And it was like, listen, you are over here talking about the rights of man in France. You're over here doing trade posts all over the world. The richest colonial trade outpost in the world. There's so much exchange of money and ideas and cultures. So we just want what you have. All we're doing is exercising the idea that you are exercising. And they saw themselves as more than what people saw them as. And I thank God that that is my DNA because there are moments in my life where I have questioned myself and, and you know how hard I work. And there are moments where I feel like I need to prove myself. And I'm very appreciative that my DNA has taught me that as long as I focus on understanding my own condition, the human condition and valuing connectivity between people and experiences, I will improve myself. I don't need someone else to look at me and decide what I'm gonna be or how far I can go or what my value is or what my worth is. When you carry that in your own bones, you're unbothered by people. I call it Beyonce level, but like you are unbothered by people. And I'm so grateful that that was passed down. Uh, when you think about it, the revolution happened because our slave class and our, our, our gen de couleur, our free black class linked up, literally. Cause they was like, now nah, we gonna do this our way. Yeah, the, the, those who were enslaved 
weren't happy, but like, we have some ways to navigate. And it looked like it was going to be successful once France declared the rights of man. And they're like, you know what, we're going to abolish slavery. And what happened? The colonizers, the white folks on Hispaniola lost their ish. They're like, how dare France try to end slavery and give these people rights and they can vote and they can run for We can't have this. Oh no, we're going to link up with Britain and revolt. And we were like, you know what, while they distracted, let me holler at you because they about to act stupid. And let's link up, let's connect with each other and let's, let's decide on what we want this to look like because this experience is getting worse for us. It's not getting better. I just love that like I come from a group of people that no matter the situation, they have the ability to see past themselves and link up They have the ability to pull from different cultures and ideals and shape something for themselves because that's what helped me. You know, Black liberation theology and and the way that Black people, Afro-descendant people in the U.S. fought and are still fighting for our liberation is is intimately tied with this idea that you just espoused. And, you know, because you are in Syracuse, it's important for us to kind of try to think about how this connects. And I'm always trying to think about the ways that these histories connect. Part of the history behind what happened after Toussaint Louverture and, and Haitians rebelled against, you see, I got my, got my history gone. Um, shout out to Spring Valley, New York, and all my Haitians over there, Sakpase, because they told me all I know about Haiti. This revolutionary fight that was established um, was reacted to by decades of reparations, right? Mm -hmm. Being paid to Mm -hmm. the French, right? Mm -hmm. And kind of forcible extraction of resources, which Mm -hmm. in many respects feels kind of analogous to the types of ways that Black communities after slavery, after enslavement, after the Civil War um, were finally able to quote unquote be free and establish land and property that was extracted from them or their descendants. And in this conversation about reparations, there are examples of reparations in the Western hemisphere. You have Haitians paying reparations until effectively the late nineties um, to the, the, the French. Um, and so I, I just would be interested in getting in the, in the last few moments we have, how does, the struggle for reparations um, and repairing the harm that the French and the Britain Woods Institutes, the World Bank and IMF have played on colonizing and recolonizing Haiti in neocolonialistic approaches. How have those problems facilitated for the challenges Haiti currently faces? And how do they parallel the same types of ways that white supremacist policies have extracted resources from folks on the south side of Syracuse, because I think it's easy for us to see them as disparate and distinct issues, but they're all kind of similarly look analogous to one another. The same formula. So can you lean into that for us? One thing I give the colonizers, they're consistent about their formulas. So I want to predispose this by saying the idea of Black liberation came from the idea of human liberation. So there were white philosophers, 
writing to each other across the globe about, oh, I'm enlightened. And I believe that all humans are created as free creatures of God. Yay for your enlightenment. But as soon as black people who they labeled as products participated in that enlightenment, it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, we said humans, but we didn't mean y'all. We didn't mean y'all. We didn't mean all humans. Slow. Wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Because it challenged that fake allyship that they were creating with each other. Because all it is is mass oppression. Second, you have people like Louverture who fought in the American Revolution in 1776. He was a part of the free men that George Washington requested support Savannah and South Carolina during that time. Yet afterward in 1804, when this colony takes that same idea of no taxation without representation and applies it to themselves. Oh no, Washington can't be bothered. I can't, I can't acknowledge Haiti as a, as a sovereignty. That would piss off France and we need their help to keep Britain off our backs. So I'm gonna keep my boot on their neck and sanction them and not trade with them for the first, what, 60 years of their infancy as a new country. And they wanna join other white countries across the world and block and be like, no, we're not gonna, the place that we all traded with, the place that supplied all of us with sugar, coffee, all of a sudden, gold, that, all of that a sudden. That we extracted resources from. Exactly, because you weren't trading with the black people there, you were trading with yourselves. It was just an outpost. You went there, you took the minerals and you left. You got your money off of it. But the concept that there would be Black people on the other end of these resources and products ready to trade with you, and you're like, no, because, I, because I, I'm saying I believe in the freedom and the rights of men, but I'm not going to exercise that because I don't have to. I have the privilege to. And then you go a step further, and then France contracts you to come freeze my bank accounts and take the money and resources from me to pay them so they can, and I quote, repair the damages done to the people who were colonizing Haiti and enslaving people. The same folks that were about to revolt against them and link up with Britain, they wanna pay them back. But then they realize we don't have enough money to pay them back even with your help. So they you know, sold the rest of the Louisiana Purchase to America for a real great deal. And they was like, look, we did you a solid, do us one. So this right here is the formula of how you find, colonizers will find each other, share this idea of what they need, like what they need to manufacture, the product and the outcome that they want. And they will strip and strip and strip and they don't care about what harm it does to people. I mean. United States occupied Haiti twice, twice. So the idea that from 1804 to the 1900s, that you're stripping me of everything that I have. And the only time you, honestly, the only time America recognized Haiti's sovereignty is when they needed help during the Civil War. How about that? Oh, by the way, we recognize you as a nation. 
can you help us out? We have this Southern Northern issue going on. It, it, it's so offensive. And then when you put the decades that America participated in, in the disenfranchisement and the rest of the superpowers of the world participate in the disenfranchisement. How do you disenfranchise people, steal minerals from them, put them on a trade block, take money from them because they didn't wanna be killed and oppressed by you anymore for a hundred years and then expect them to establish stability politically. I mean, even when, even when the United States occupied Haiti in 1915, who do you think created our Haitian military police? The US Secret Service. So you're sitting here installing presidents, giving guns to rebels, and you want to put on the news that, oh my God, Haiti's a mess again. How did it get there? We don't manufacture guns. Did nobody ask you to occupy us until we made you leave in 1934 and then you came back and occupied islands because they had oil reserves? It is so offensive. And then even after the earthquake, oh, look, we gave you all this aid. Is it aid if you're, if you're giving a little bit of money to people that you've stolen billions from? I can't even tell you the emotional reparations that it creates when the the oppressor that has raped the island that I'm from has made conditions so bad that my family has to decide to either stay and tough it out or to move to the home of the oppressor and find opportunities. That is the equivalent of moving back into your slave master's house after they've killed your family, because that is the only way that you can survive. That is what that feels like. And then sitting at the dinner table as the slave master says, man, that family of yours that you left, ooh, they a mess. And you have to sit at that table and process that. It is, it is psychologically harmful, but we do the same thing in the states at local government the effects of redlining, the effects of Jim Crow laws. I mean, when you think about it, we fought the deadliest war in American history because Abraham Lincoln said, I need to tap into the connectivity of this class that we won't acknowledge. His motives, not interested in those right now. We understand they were political. That's what politicians do. They make government decisions based off political motivations. But these folks here killed their head of state because they disagreed with the ideal that they can be equal to others that they see themselves better than. The Emancipation Proclamation guaranteed our right to vote, our right to property, and our right to run businesses and be paid for our service. Back in 1609, but it wasn't until when? the civil rights movement that we were able to exercise those rights. Because for hundreds of years, what did people do? They fought it. They came up with loopholes. They oppressed people, they killed people. How can you build cities where you have pushed the working class out? You have denied them access to education, to healthy education, healthy housing, healthy food, to health, to even exercise their own faith. How can you do that 
and then have an expectation that they would be to the level of modernization advancement that you are. You know, I'm a poet and there's a, there's a poem uh, called America 2010, which I love. And I wrote it after um, uh, uh, Obama was inaugurated because I was frustrated at this idea that like, oh, we have a black president, we're post-racial, like, no. And there's this line where it says, um, let me tell you a story. If, if I, you know, if, if I didn't have a dollar for 146,000 days and you got a dollar every day for 146,000 days, then your expectation that I would have the same money and performance accessibility as you after on that 146,000 in first day is either senile or evil. It's the definition of gaslighting. How can you expect us to have as much saved up power in dollars as you? But we do because we burn ourselves and work harder and faster and at unhealthy rates just to compete. And all that we carry to exercise that is looked at as aggressive, is looked at as overcompetitive, is looked at as, as unnecessary advantage. When I look at Syracuse and I see a community that is now, based on the last census report, 52% black and brown. One out of every two people who walk down the street in Syracuse are black or brown. White is now in the minority here. And I walk into buildings and private businesses and I don't see one out of two people being black or brown. You have to ask yourself what happened that opportunity was not distributed equitably throughout the growth of the city, throughout the advancement of the city. It is not an accident. It is what happens when you take a coin and you put it in this hand every day for 60 years and put nothing in this hand. You can't put those hands together and call that equity. That's not equity. One, that's a gaslight. Two, it's disrespectful. And three, when you find yourself in the condition when you put those hands together and you see the inequity, it's, it's like a ball of yarn. You can't just hold it in the middle of your hand and say that's even. The delicacy needed to unravel that and get it to a place where it's better for everyone will take twice as long as it took to ravel. That's the reality of the situation. And every day that we make progress in doing that is a win with a small W. But a win with a big W will be when the individuals that benefit from what their families, what their grandparents, what their great-grandparents have done, look inside themselves and recognize that they have a responsibility to participate in the betterment of the city and the betterment of people in general. Because I mean, we're all American, we're all in America. We are inextricably connected to each other. It, look what happened after COVID. Because people aren't coming back to work, our supply chains are struggling. You don't have drivers that could help us with trade. Because certain cities advanced in technology and innovation more than others, now we have what the brain drain shortage. We can't compete globally for tech 
and for, for engineering for STEM related fields. So when you invest in the places you want to and not in the places you don't want to, you create a, a dynamic and a vacuum that everyone has to pay for. It's not only selfish on an, on an ethical front, it is poor business. So I look around the city and I see in the past six years, I see people of color trying to buy houses because they're paying more in rent than people who have houses are paying in mortgages, but they're being blocked by banks. I see them paying higher interest rate for cars. I see them trying to go through payment plans to manage their everyday utilities. I see them pouring out more liquid assets in day-to-day -day living than those that have fixed assets. And the people who are blocking them are those that have fixed assets. You can't ask, you can't ask the victim to move the wall. You have to move the wall. So it's frustrating that part of economic development in this city and in all cities across America can't be done without acknowledging and addressing the lack of education and the lack of humanity in stakeholders to recognize that they have created that situation of poverty. Yusuf, you can't bring an elephant in my house and then expect me to figure out how to get it out the door and live and prosper in this house. Like you have to participate in that solution. Thank you for that, Ruthney. I'll just say in closing that this entire mantra of pull yourselves up by your bootstraps while one, the straps were removed and we're actually on skateboards. <laughs> so the game has changed and continues to evolve purposely to exclude us out. I think it's a joke, but it's it's not just that. It's to your to your broader point, how can you in the context of Haiti expect a different outcome when consistently Haiti is pillaged in ways that prevent that? And analogous to the black experience in the US, how do you expect a community of people? to continuously thrive to overcome and strive to overcome systemic structural white supremacist policies that are designed for their defeat. And then when they actually do attain and are catching up, you either change the rules or, or pull the rug from beneath them. So I, I just wanna thank you for, for being here today. There were so many things I wanna talk with you about. We'll have you back on. But this is really important for folks. You hit, to get you a hit sense. the button. I'm sorry. You you hit the trigger. You made me go places that I normally can package and compartmentalize very well. <laughs> no, we want, like, we want we want we want that here at Afro Futures. It's so important that folks get to hear your unadulterated raw feelings about these issues because it matters. And I think you have helped to humanize a little bit the experience and 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 the the gifts that Haiti has given us. So thank you for gifting us with that, Ruthie. Um, you have been listening to Ruthney Angran with myself, Yusuf Abdul Qadir, the host of Afro Futures. You can catch Afro Futures anywhere you get your podcasts. And Afro Futures is a production of WAER with Kevin Kloss working with us to get the show on the road. Thanks, Thank you Kevin. again, Ruthney. Thanks, Yusuf.